Well, I've, I've got a lot to go through today. Um, I was telling Christy, I, I generally gauge how long class is going to be by how many pages of notes I have. And I usually shoot for five. I've got six and a half today. So if I cut you off from like, I know there are lots of comments. You guys are good at commenting. Uh, and what, reminder again, please be nice and loud so everybody can hear, and I'll try to repeat the main points. But if I cut you off, don't take it personally. Um, I'm not, I mean, I'm not going to cut you off in the mid-sentence or something. But uh, I just got a lot of things to go through. But before we get started on Job today, if you've been married to me for any length of time, you know that I absolutely love song lyrics. Um, they're the poetry of our time, and I, I, I really get, get into song lyrics. And Christy and I went to a concert at the Stanley Hotel on Friday night uh, for Gregory Allen Isakov, and his, uh, the opening act was Patrick Park. Anybody know Patrick Park? Okay, you should. Um, and one of the, he sings one of my favorite songs. It's called Life is a Song. And I've heard the song many times, but, and I've, I know the words. But for some reason, uh, this, the song really hit me the last, well, this one, one section. And uh, it's probably the only one weeping in the concert. But he says, Well, you say that you know that the good Lord's in control. He's going to bless and keep your tired and oh-so-restless soul. But at the end of the day, when every price has been paid, if you're going to rise and sit beside him on some old seat of gold, well, then why won't you tell me why you live like you're afraid to die and you die like you're afraid to go? And it, sorry, here we go. It just, I thought in this class, talking about pain and suffering and thinking about death and fun stuff like that, um, it just hit me that. We live like we're afraid to die, but we say that we're not. We say that we have this great thing coming for us, but we don't live like it. So this is, before we get into Job uh, and his suffering and pain today, I want to just in, encourage us all to think like this, to not be the person who doesn't live like we have something better coming. Uh, so let's, let's start with a prayer. Father, thank you so much for giving us this life and the, the experiences and the family and the things that we have here. And I pray that you'll help us to always live like we have a true hope, not some, something theoretical. But through the suffering and the difficult times we have in this life, to keep that hope in mind and keep that goal in mind. We pray these things through your Son. Amen. So... Today we'll be continuing on the story of Job. Um, last week we talked about, uh, kind of starting to go through the narrative, we talked about Job himself and how he's depicted as the ideal person. And he's blameless and, and upright as in God's eyes. <clears throat> and how even his family and possession are depicted in ideal numbers like sevens and threes um, and, and fives as well. And all of this making what happens to him all the more shocking. And the first scene of the narrative takes place apparently in heaven. One of the beings on, in God's divine counsel is referred to as the challenger or the accuser. <clears throat> and I went through how this word in Hebrew is Satan, and we've just transliterated it. And what it really means is challenger, or adversary, opposer, or accuser. It's something who, somebody who stands against somebody else and kind of pushes back. And 
it's it's should not be translated as a capital S Satan because it's not a proper name. It's 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 always listed as the Satan or Ha Satan. Um, and this is very different than you've probably been taught before, um, thanks to just translation uh, traditions in the past. Um, but there's very little evidence that this person in Job is actually the devil. Uh, he doesn't tempt anybody or do anything uh, morally questionable. And I'm not saying the devil doesn't exist. That's not my point. Uh, I just That's not who is in this story at this time. And I think this is important because seeing this person as the devil gives the story a very different angle. And I think it's important to acknowledge that the one ultimately responsible for stuff that happens to Job in this story is God himself. And God even makes that clear multiple times, that he is the one who is doing this. And we'll flesh out that idea in a little bit. But for this thought experiment of Job, this wisdom parable, um, to get to the core of the issue of what I think is being uh, taught, it's important that God is the one who is responsible for what happens, um, because God is the one who has to answer for it later. Um, And I know that there are lots of questions about the Satan stuff, so I was going to ask if you have any questions now, but I've got too many pages. So if you have questions, I'm happy to talk about it. I, I, I've done tons of study about it. I'm not an expert, so I can answer questions that maybe I can, and um, it's an, a lot of opinion on this stuff, uh, but hit me up later. Um, so that was last week. So today we're going to be looking at the two rounds of suffering that Job goes through and how that sets up the central point of the debate for the book. So as we said, the challenger comes along and God points out to this challenger, he's like, hey, have you seen my servant Job, how fantastic he is? And the challenger raises this question. He says, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him in his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. In other words, he's saying, isn't Job just a super good person because he's super blessed? And the question I have for you guys is, this is the challenger, or the accuser. Why would this be a challenge? Isn't this just a simple question? Why is this a challenge to God? I'll take guesses as well. Yeah, Joe. Joe. Well, it indicates that nobody is genuinely good. There's no such thing as genuine love. Um, there's, there's, it's, it's not all a quid pro quo. It's all that, hey, I'm, I'm a righteous person because I'm doing this in return. Uh, this is how our relationship's going to work. So it's not authentic. Yeah, it indicates that there's no relationship that God has that is authentic with humans, basically. That the only reason anybody loves God is because he gives them stuff. Yeah, that's definitely true. Any other thoughts? Yeah. Yeah, he, he'd be implying that God doesn't understand why Job is so good. Um. Yeah, aside from, I think, he's kind of calling out Job a little bit, saying Job's morally deficient because if he didn't have stuff, he wouldn't be a good person. But I think he's challenging, this, I think this is a challenge, but it's, because it's more of a challenge 
of how we think God works than really a challenge of God. And this whole thing is being set up as, like I said, this ancient wisdom parable. And the people, every, every person around the, the Israel at the time and all of Mesopotamia and honestly most of the world had this idea that this is how the gods worked. That if you did good for them, they would do good for you. That if you do good, you receive good. And if you do bad, you receive bad. And so the challenger is challenging this idea and saying, is this a good, is this a good policy, God? And this policy is, this is a, what in philosophy is called the retribution principle. Um, or the principle of just recompense, retributive justice. There's lots of words, phrases for it. Or sometimes it's just basically called justice. Because we think that this is justice, really. Uh, yeah, Kathy. Yeah, so not necessarily challenging this concept, but challenging humanity that if you, have, if you give somebody free will, there's no way they're going to follow you unless you give them stuff. Yeah, he's, he's an example of the challenge, yeah. Right. That's, that's an interesting way to phrase it, that in the Old Testament he says that if you do, if you do everything right, things will go good for you. Because we get that impression in Proverbs, that, that that's what Proverbs is. It's like describing how this, you do the right thing and good things will happen. Right, but then you get to Ecclesiastes, and that throws a wrench in everything. Because Ecclesiastes is like, yeah, if you do good, maybe things will happen, but sometimes just everything goes wrong. And so we, I, I think that the, the message from God is not necessarily that you do good, the good things will happen. I think it's if you do good, you're more likely to have good things happen. Um, but we'll, we'll get that into that a little, in a little bit. Um, what, so when, I ask, when, when, we, when we ask the question, why do good things happen to bad, or why, do, why do bad things happen to good people, what is implied in that question? 
that comes from this. Yeah. That we know what bad is. Well, it's imp- implied that we know what bad is. It's a good point. When we say the bad thing is happening to us, we we assume that it's bad when it may not be bad. Could be. Yeah, somebody else. I saw him. We we could assume that God is doing the bad thing. Yeah, it it implies that if we do good, we're entitled to good. Because I I think that this retribution principle seems to be kind of built into us. We assume that this is how. We want this to be the thing that happens, and we therefore, I think, overlay our preferences on how God actually works. We assume that this is actually how things always happen. Um, how do we see this idea or assumed principle play out in our world today? Justice system? Yeah? The idea of karma? The idea of karma? Yeah, Definitely. It's totally karma. <laughs> um, this idea has been around forever, clearly, and this, it's the basis of a lot of society. Like the the criminal justice system is is a huge one. That if you do wrong, that your punishment should be in proportion to what you did wrong. Um, and we and honestly, on a cosmic level, on the long the long stage, this is definitely how things work with God. That if, if you are, uh, if you do sin, if you displease God, then you are on the wrong side of things, and th- bad bad will happen to you. Um, but I'm more talking about the day to day stuff. Um, beyond assuming that good people should have good things happen to them, we assume that if that if good things happen to someone, they must be a good person. We kind of flip it around. That oh, you're rich and famous, you must be a good person on some level. Or you've got a lots of money and wealth and power. You're in charge of lots of stuff. You must be some sort of a good person. And we, we may not say those words out loud, but we have this... We start mixing up morality into it. That if you're rich, you must be somehow moral. And if you're poor, you must have made some moral decision that's bad. Yes? Yeah, it does get wrapped up in the bootstrap mentality that if, if I'm a good person, then I'm able to work hard and American dream. Yeah, David. I'm really glad this is coming up because in my opinion, I think it's core to even our current theological outlook. I think one of the reasons we are a little bit afraid to tell others that things aren't great in our life is because maybe that means our faith isn't pure. Yes. Yeah. But I think it's 
Yeah. Yeah, to, to kind of summarize it, we, we've uh, complicated this into our Christianity to think that if we, if we say we are having problems with our kids or our life or our, our faith walk or whatever, then that means we're a bad person in some way. And that we're, when we are afraid to share that with people, it gets worse until maybe it explodes or it becomes a huge problem. Um, and I, I totally agree. I think this is a huge... The, and it's, it's not a, it is an ancient idea, but it's very, very current today. This is unfortunately how we see the world and how we see each other. And we need to be very careful that when someone, does, someone has a problem, that we don't assume morality into that. When I was diagnosed with Parkinson's a couple years ago, it, I was shocked at the, the implications that I got from some Christians about like the questioning mor- the morality of my life and like, like, what did you do wrong type of a thing? And nobody ever came out and said, like, what sin is in your life that caused you to have Parkinson's at such a young age? But I got that implications heavily from several people, which is, is devastating to, to have that feeling. And um, so we need to be careful about this. We, we, we think we, we, we fully believe this idea, just like the people in ancient times and they, they especially believe this is an, an immutable law, that this is how God or the gods ran things, so much so that it was believed that the gods were constrained by this idea and that even God had to follow this law, that he had no choice but to do this stuff. When someone was good, you had to do good for them. Yet, the story of Job seems to turn that upside down somehow, because you you see God going against this principle in in some ways, and because Job is a classic story of someone who doesn't deserve something, and everything bad happens to him, and God is at the center of 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 all of it. So today we're going to look at exactly what happens to Job. Um, the challenger makes this claim that Job is the only only good because he's blessed, and God basically says, "Try me. I I know Job's heart. Give give it a shot. See what happens." And so what happens in the next couple chapters is the absolute destruction of Job's life. So round one of suffering, chapter one, starting in verse 13. One day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby, and the Sabaeans tacked and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword, and I I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The fire of God fell from heavens and burned up the sheep and the servants, and I'm the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, man, it's a bad day. Another messenger came and said, The Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and made off with them and put the servants to the sword, and I'm the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, Your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house when suddenly a mighty wind swept from the desert. I I got that twice. You get the point. So these are the blessings that Job... we We just were told about Job's blessings in earlier in the chapter. His perfect and complete blessings we just learned about are completely gone. All of these things destroyed or killed or taken away. 
How many things is this? There's, you can count. Seven. Once again, back to this number of seven being complete and utter, fulfilled, complete destruction. In this case, destruction. So does, does Job curse God like the challenger predicted? No, he does not. At this, Job got up and tore his robes and shaved his head, and he fell on the ground and in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. So Job is blessing God here and not cursing him. I would love to have that kind of strength if this kind of stuff happened to me. Um, and by the way, I want to share this with you. A cool, I'm not a Hebrew scholar by any stretch of the imagination, but I found I came across this cool thing that, that apparently in, in this book, I'm not sure about the rest of the Hebrew scriptures, nobody would ever write the words curse God next to each other. Because when you're writing it, you would have to write curse God. So whenever they say curse in this, in this book, it actually is the Hebrew word for bless. But the, the, the um, context, you're supposed to get from the context that he's actually saying curse God. And apparently, if you read the Hebrew Bibles, you know this, you know this stuff. So when, he, when the, the challenger says he's going to curse you uh, if you do this stuff, He's actually saying he's going to bless you, and then Job actually blesses him. It's kind of this cool Hebrew wordplay thing. I'm a nerd. Um, so the end of, this is the end of round one of the trial. God is vindicated, and Job is faithful, and he remains even though all of his blessings are gone. So on to round two. Uh, we're back in heaven in the divine council on another day, and the setup of the, and the conversation between the challenger and God are, are almost identical to chapter 1. And the challenger is there again, and once again, God points out how fantastic Job is. He says, have you considered my servant Job? There's no one on earth like him, etc. Um, blameless. And then God points out that even though Job was afflicted, Job is still faithful. He says, and he still maintains his integrity, integrity, Though you incited me against him to ruin him without any reason. And so God, as I mentioned last week, he acknowledges that there was no good reason for what happened to Job. Job didn't deserve it. It didn't prove the challenger's point. It just made things tough for Job. Um, And then God allows the challenger to afflict Job's body this time. The challenger says, or says, skin for skin, the challenger replied. A man will give up all he has for his own life, but now stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to the challenger, very well then, he is in your hands, but you must spare his life. In other words, sure, he still loves you without his blessings and his stuff and his family, but he still has his health. And nobody would keep blessing you if their health was destroyed. And then Job is afflicted with a pretty nasty-sounding disease. So the challenger went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores from his soles of his feet to the crown of his head. And Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself with it as he sat among the ashes. Um, and the, 
this imagery with pottery and ashes is kind of an ancient Mesopotamian imagery of death. So it's kind of like Job is like saying, I'm dead. I just might as well sit here and die and, and, and mourn it. Um, and as rough as it is for him, even his wife tells him to give up. His wife said to him, are you still maintaining your te- integrity? Curse God and die. But our boy Job does not do that. He instead drops some truth on us. Do you like that, Hannah? Um, and he says, you are talking like a foolish woman. We, shall we accept good from God and not trouble? In all this, Job did not sin in what he said. What does this, this verse, what does this tell us about God? Yeah, from Job's perspective, God gives both good and bad. How does that make you feel? That God gives good and trouble. And this, this Hebrew word here for trouble is ra, which just means bad things. It doesn't mean evil. It just means not things that, are, that I don't want. <laughs> Difficulties. Yeah. What verse is that? Isaiah 45? Okay. Um, and the reason I looked that up was um, I was looking for a verse to send to somebody to encourage them. <laughs> uh, and the verse I, I first saw was Isaiah 45, verse 2. It said, I'll go before you and I'll level the mountains, I'll break down gates of bronze and cut through bars of iron, I'll give you hidden treasures. Riches stored in secret places, so you may know that I am the Lord. And then I just decided to get some context, and I had that in there too. And I, I thought, how does that change my perspective of God? Like the question you just asked me. You know, am I willing to praise Him when He's good, and still be willing to either praise Him when it's bad, or wait for you know the bigger picture later on? And, and that's a hard thing. Yeah, this this is not the only verse in, in the scriptures that indicates that God gives us difficult things. Um, it, he gives us good and he gives us things that are difficult. But I think possibly back to Chuck's point, difficult does not mean evil, does not mean bad. Um, it means difficult. It means I don't like it. Um, think, thinking back to the fact that he's our father, if I do that with my children. I, I make them do things that are difficult. Noah does not like to shovel the driveway, but he does it. Yeah. You know, this, this all centers in, in, in our concept of the sovereignty of God. I mean, we really struggle with the sovereignty of God because we, we have to have God in our own image. And we, we have to think that God does things the way we think he should. And that's what we really struggle with. That's the center of all this. Yeah, we, we do like to tell God what to do and how to work. And I think that the, he is, he's free to do whatever he wants to do. And we have to allow that sovereignty to be there. Yeah. I mean, through the first year of 
Yeah, in this world you will have trouble. Yeah, we will lose our reliance on God if we don't have difficulty. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Difficulties lead to better things. But if everything's always good, we wouldn't grow as much. But I kind of would like everything to be good. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. Right, exactly. Right. We need to be careful about the idea that if you are upset with God or if you are depressed or if you have, are having a hard time with something, that that means you're less righteous. And Job, we're about, we're gonna, next week we're going to get into what Job is saying after this. He's like, not a happy camper, obviously. He's, if, you, if, the, if, it, if the story ends here, you're like, Job's good with whatever happened. He's, he's happy camper. But if you keep reading, he's like, curse the day I was born. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of. There are so many allusions to the Adam and Eve in this, and then the tree of knowledge and wisdom and things like that. We'll get into that in another class. Yeah. If Christy said something like this to me, it would devastate me. I, I would. I would lose it. Um. So once again, the, uh, the, the, in, in, if you look at Job's trials, in the first trial, God took away the good things, and in the second trial, God gives bad things. And so both things happen. But in both, both situations, we have something from Job saying, God gives the good and the bad. We need to be okay with that. And that's, that's hard. Um, so his health is gone, and he still does not sin. And Job's friends come to him and sit with him in the ashes to provide comfort, end of round two. So I want to go back to this concept of the retribution principle. Now that we've seen a good man who doesn't deserve it have everything bad happen to him, I'm going to talk about what this problem is, the, pro- the problem statement of this book. And this is, what, this is what the book of Job is really about. So the problem is, if good people are blessed is how things run, and, and the goodest of persons has every bad, everything bad happened to him. That's a real word, by the way, if you ask my kids. <clears throat> how can Yahweh be considered a just God if those two things are true? And 
like I said, that's what this book is really about. It's an investigation into by what policies does God run the earth? And are they just? Are they just policies? And the question is raised via this human suffering of Job and what he went through. It raises questions like, what kind of world am I living in where I can do the right all the time and not get rewarded for it? What kind of world am I living in where someone else can do wrong things constantly and become wealthy and powerful? What does it say about God's character? It doesn't seem to make sense. That's really, that's really a worldly, worldly, worldly view. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I totally agree that we need to keep in mind that our, our, we have, like I mentioned at the beginning of class, we have a promise for something much more as far as a, a reward. And that's, that is where we need to be focusing. Um, however, we are still living on this planet, and we feel this a lot more. It's much more immediate. And um, this is especially how Job thought of things, because Job never had, doesn't really have this concept of heaven. It doesn't really bring that kind of thing up at all. It's just all about what's happening now. Yeah, Abby? That you just jumped to the end of Job. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's fine. Yeah, who are, who are we to determine this? What's good and what's bad? Whether the, on the front side or the back side. And that's, that's really what this, this whole book is end, ends up as, yeah. I, yeah, I think that's the most beautiful thought in this, in this book, is that, uh, you know, he has such, such a myopic perspective. He's in such a tiny world. And then at the end of the, the book, God shows this eternal perspective. Yeah. And, and looking at it, one of the most amazing things that he says in this book is that, oh, were, were my story, my life written down? And the crazy thing is, imagine Job now, in eternity, if he had all of this to do over again, if he could go back in, in the past, would would he change anything? You know, um, in, in my perspective, you know, it's like you lived a life painful, absolutely, but you lived a life that impacted thousands of millions, generations. My life ended. Yeah, I think a lot of it comes, what you're getting at is it comes to perspective. Right. If our perspective is so immediate and so temporary that I think I'm going through these struggles and these trials, how can that possibly be good? Because all I'm feeling is bad. But like Job going through this, clearly it's impacting us thousands of years later. So we, we don't know. Yeah. Well, you know, there's a, there's a parallel example to this. You know, if, if we have the right perspective and we're looking at our reward as our eternal reward. Yeah. But you go into Matthew, 
uh, chapter, you know, talking about the, the workers in the vineyard. Those who are hired early get the same wages as the guy who came on right before quitting time. You know, here, if I become a Christian when I'm a teenager and I live this very, you know, strict life, I'm, you know, trying to walk in God's footsteps versus someone who on their deathbed when they're 80 accepts Christ in their life. You know, we get upset with that, just like that. Well, hold it, I should get something more because I lived the Christian life longer. Yeah, it's like, it's back to this proportionality of yeah. the return. If I do lots of good stuff, I should get lots of good stuff back versus somebody who just, like, became a Christian at the, right before they died yeah, or something. so even if we have the right perspective and we're looking at eternity, I think I should have more in eternity the, yeah, thinking of it as eternity doesn't solve our yeah. heart problem. Yeah, it doesn't. This. It, the problem's still yeah. there, at least the human nature's. So, to piggyback off of Jeff's point, this whole class I've been thinking about Horatio Stafford, and he wrote that song, It Is Well With My Soul, and I encourage everyone, if you don't know his story, to read it. Like He wrote that song when sailing across the Atlantic at the spot where his four daughters drowned. Right. I mean, like, all of us who have sang that song and you listen to the words, it is uplifting in the perspective of who you're going to influence. I mean, none of, none of us know. I'm sure when he wrote that, he had no idea that hundreds of years later, we, you know, we would be singing that song and how encouraging it would be to those of us who are suffering now. Yeah, the, she was saying that the, the song, It Is Well With My Soul, written by a guy at the, point, at the place where his four daughters died, and, and how that, that's, just, that's a really good example of looking at the perspective of things. David? The, the problem with eternity is that it's at risk with how we live this physical life that we have. Yeah. So the answer to this question, or the lack of answer, or the struggling with, can cause many people to not have the opportunity for eternity with God. This is one of the major things that a non believer will confront us with. Right. Yeah, and that's a really good point. I'm going to move on uh, after that because how what he was saying is that eternity is it's absolutely true. We we have a blessing beyond, but this this pro- problem of pain in the world today is, according to research, the number one reason that people reject God or fall away because they cannot. It's this cognitive dissonance trying to hold two seemingly opposing ideas in your head at the same time. And it battles with your brain, and you kick something out. We come up with a lot of possible conclusions. We may think that the sufferer who is going through this may not, may not actually be good, kind of like I was saying, that it was kind of implied with me. Um, we think that God must not be a just God. Maybe he's kind of vindictive. We think, sometimes we think that there is no God. Because it's not possible for a good God to allow bad things to happen to good people and, or innocent people. And sometimes, less often, we think maybe that's not how things work. 
And that's the conclusion that I want to point you guys to, is maybe that's not how things actually work. Um, these trials of Job in the first two chapters are set up, setting up what's going to be discussed and debated throughout the rest of the book. And uh, I came across this really good um, visual of this. Uh, this guy, Mata Tiahu Tzavat, wrote a book, uh, a thing called The Meaning of the Book of Job. And he says, think of it, there's three things. There's Job's innocence, the retribution principle, and God's justice. We want all these to be true at the same time. But in reality, only two can be true at the same time because of the way things are working in the book of Job. Job knows that he's innocent, and he assumes the retribution principle, as we'll see him talking about later. Job assumes this as well. And at the end of the book, he gets very upset, and he's like, there's no way God can be just. Something's wrong with God. Whereas Job's friends assume that God's just, and they also assume the retribution principle is immutable law. So then, therefore, Job must be messed up. They even invent possible sins that he's done to say that Job's, Job's the bad guy. But if God is just and Job is innocent, then this principle that we're so certain of can't be true. And this is a, it's a tough one because as, I've, as we've looked at, so much of our, our society and our, our life is built around the retribution principle being a true thing. But if those things are, two things are true, it cannot be a true thing. So this is really the struggle at the core of the book. And to be honest, it's in our own hearts because I think this is why we struggle so much when bad things happen to good people. Because it just doesn't seem right. We want the retribution principle to be true and, and always the thing that always works. But it doesn't. And we, where do we kick back? And so that's what we're going to be talking about a little bit more next week. We're going to get into what Job's friends have to say and what their opinions are on the matter. And we'll go further into how, how we can do something of like that with our life. Yeah, last comment. I think we very often, I think we say to ourselves the things about heaven and the, the reward that happens, but I think sometimes we often feel that it should be just, that the world should be, this retribution principle is the case. And so I think you're right, we were with ourselves, and I think we have to be really, really careful not to use heaven and eternal principles and as an easy answer for suffering. Don't use heaven as a get-out-of-pain-free card. It's not an easy answer. And if you yeah, it's tell not. someone who's suffering that it is, they're going to completely disregard everything you've ever Yeah, done. someone who just lost their family and their livelihood, if you say, well, you're going to go to heaven, <laughs> that's not always the best course uh, to comfort them. All right, well, I'm a little bit over time, so thanks for being here today. We'll see you guys next time.